Greetings and welcome to AFPC. My name is Ahmed Best. Thank you for joining. I first met Tracy Drain um, when I co-hosted a science speed dating event for the Science and Entertainment Exchange. And if you don't know who the Science and Entertainment Exchange are, um, they're a wonderful group that provides all the hard science for our film and television. So if you're doing a show that um, requires any kind of hard science to uh, back up or corroborate what you're writing, you call the Science and Entertainment Exchange. So the Science and Entertainment Exchange and I collaborated on an Afrofuturist science speed dating where we had seven scientists who had seven minutes to blow your mind and Tracy Drain was one of the scientists and even though she doesn't call herself a scientist I I, I consider her one uh, she calls herself an engineer and she is she's an engineer for NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab and the reason why I really loved Tracy Drain was not just because how she delivered her um, speed dating topic, but I was enthralled by her incredible optimism and increased enthusiasm for talking about this topic. You don't see very many black women engineers at NASA and JPL, and that's not just my assessment. That's what Tracy is also experienced in her life, in her career. So I, I really wanted to speak to her about that, how she got to JPL and um, what the climate was like uh, coming up with things. But even beyond that, the thing that I really, really love about Tracy is that optimism that she has for what she does and the passion that she has for what she does. And uh, we start off talking about what's happening now in the world with COVID-19 and, and everyone being in lockdown on quarantine. And one of the biggest questions that I have for somebody who deals with space is how you handle these insurmountable seeming problems. And when you have an idea, how do you bring that idea to fruition? An idea that for all intents and purposes, that idea is so completely um, extravagant to the layman, but to someone like her, uh, an engineer with that mind and that mindset, it really is about solving the problem that's in front of you. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate that mindset. And she is just, uh, just a, a wonderful resource, a ball of energy and, um, a, a cosmic ray of sunshine. And I really appreciated her taking the time off to talk to us here at AFPC. And uh, I'm going to stop talking now because she is such a great, person and such a great resource and and now a great friend that um you should all just experience some tracy drain so here she is tracy drain how are you i'm great how are you doing on it i'm very good thank you for being on the afrofuturist podcast um my pleasure it's always great to see and hear you um and i'm kind of gonna kick it off um, with a question or questions that I've had that I've been having, uh, especially during this time, you know, just especially during, you know, being in the quarantine and everything changing about life. And, um, and I felt like you were a perfect person to ask this question to because you deal with 
things that seem to be insurmountable. You have very huge um, stakes and goals when you are doing a project. How do you approach insurmountable odds? How do you approach things that seem to be bigger than um, it seems like we can handle? That is a great question. And you're right about that. Being an engineer on a team of engineers who are trying to build spacecraft to go places that we've never sent spacecraft before is a really tall order, right? And mm -hmm. I think the way that we are able to accomplish those, those kinds of challenges is by, first of all, getting a lot of people with a lot of different expertise in the room because no one person is gonna be able to chart a course to do something that complex. And we spend a lot of time trying to break this big complex problem down into a lot of smaller chunks so that we can focus on those chunks and then strain them all together in a way that will ultimately work. So how do you look at information? When information comes in, and you have to decipher between information that is helpful to use for mm. you to move forward and information that might be helpful later. How do you cipher through all of that data? How do you get all of that information into a project? Another good question. And it, there is certainly no simple answer for that. I have to say some of that just comes with experience. My job in particular is as a systems engineer. And that means I'm not trying to design a specific component that goes on a spacecraft. I'm responsible for thinking across the entire spacecraft and sometimes at the project level across the whole project. So how does the spacecraft work with the instruments and the ground data system and a launch vehicle? And you just have tons of information coming at you from all directions. We call it drinking from a fire hose, right? Mm -hmm. And the way you try to see the forest for the trees is to always keep your mind on what is the problem I am trying to solve right now? And for the information that is coming our way, is that actually relevant for this problem or not? And there's kind of a sweet spot, right? Because you, you can't stay all the way at the top and just hand wave your way to answers because then your spacecraft probably not gonna work. And you also can't spend tons and tons of time looking all the way at the tiny details yourself constantly because you just wouldn't have enough time for that. So you have to figure out a way to stay in that middle spot and kind of synthesize the information and look for the pieces that matter. And there's no, there's no easy way for me to tell you how to do that. Like as engineers, we all kind of suck at that <laughs> when we first get started and you have to spend time working with more experienced engineers to kind of get a feel for how to, how to thread that needle. So when you say you're a systems engineer, what does that entail? It means that when, think about a car, a car is this complex piece of machinery that it has, it has specific goals to get humans from point A to point B to keep us comfortable. There's air conditioning to keep us entertained. There's radio, TV and all that kind of stuff in there now. But the main goal of a car is transportation. And when you look at it, it has all of these different things that have to work together. It has an engine, it has steering wheel, it has the tires that actually provide contact with the road, a brake system, all these different things. And you might have engineers who are specialists in understanding how each of them works and designing them all. But a systems engineer is making sure that all of those things come together and work as an overall top level system. And you're not making choices in one area that cause problems in another area. And so the way we kind of go about that job is thinking about your top level goal. And then we start writing requirements, which are just rules the design has to follow so that you will meet your ultimate goal. And you write those requirements at a top level, like for a car, must be able to 
start up every day, day after day for 10 years, for example. And then you would take that requirement and, and break it down to all the little things that the lower levels would have to satisfy in order to make that thing work. Like you have to have spark plugs that can, that can be sparked and again and again and again and again and not fail. You have to have a battery that you can discharge and recharge and discharge and recharge and not fail. And you keep going across the whole system. And then as people are trying to develop those things and run into problems, a system engineer thinks about, well, what experts do I need to bring into the room to talk this out and figure out how to get our arms around this problem and make a change to the design so that it'll work? And then when you get to the point where you have something built and you start testing it, all sorts of stuff doesn't go exactly the way you expect to, especially when we're building spacecraft, brand new first time kind of spacecraft. And then you do that same thing. Well, this thing isn't working. Why isn't it working? What should we do about it? Mm -hmm. Get experts together, get them to throw a lot of information at you, figure out which information is the relevant bits, find some options, pick the one that works the best and move on. So that's kind of what a system engineer's job is. Now, does the system match the mission or does the mission match the system? Do you have um, a series of systems and you go, okay, we can do this. Now let's take these systems and put it into something that is possible. Or do you come from a place of, I want to do this thing. Let me organize a bunch of systems in order to put those together so I can do that thing. It is kind of a mix of both because a lot of projects will start with NASA saying, we want you to go and take, go somewhere and get a bunch of data so that scientists can answer these kinds of questions. So you're sort of starting with a blank sheet of paper, but it would take you forever if you just developed everything from scratch every time. So then we look back to the missions that we've done in the past and say, given that we're trying to do this thing, which of these sub elements of a system that already exists can we kind of take and put together in order to make an overall system that does that? Which pieces do we have to build from scratch in order to accomplish some things that are brand new that we haven't done before? So it's a little bit of a mix. And how do you prioritize what system is the most important? Does the mission make that kind of sort out the list of priorities or you're just like, all right, we definitely know we need propulsion and navigation, we don't need, you know, uh, a camera. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do yeah. you prioritize what comes first in in line? It's kind of hilarious because if you talk to people who specialize in those different areas, everybody kind of feels like their area is the most important thing on the right. spacecraft, and that's all <laughs> kind of right, right? Yeah. If you have a spacecraft and it doesn't have an attitude control system, then you're not gonna be able to point the instruments where they need to be or point your thrusters and so you can't get anywhere. If you have a spacecraft that has a great attitude control system, but you don't have a telecom system, so you can't talk to it, well, you're never gonna get any data back. Right. If you have a spacecraft with those things, but not a power system, well, now you can't power the instruments, you can't power it. <laughs> so all of the different things, software and attitude control and propulsion and thermal, they are all important. They all have to work or you're just not going anywhere. The place where you do have a little give and take is on the instrument side, because it depends on what science you're actually after about whether you need a camera or something that'll measure the magnetic field or something that'll let you measure the gravity field. It's all about what you're trying to learn. So that's when you kind of work with scientists and headquarters, depending on what the, the top level science requirements are to figure out what instrument suite needs to go on the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And then you have to give it power, keep it warm, get its data back, be able to send it commands, all those things. What is it about space that we as human beings on earth should all care about? A lot of times, especially, you know, times like right now, 
where everybody is really concerned about COVID-19, things like space kind of fall by the wayside, right? Ideas about exploration outside of the planet kind of get pushed away as lofty because we're just like, all right, we got to deal with what's down here, right? But what is it about space that we should all keep in the front of our minds, especially in times like this? So I'll just talk a little bit about why space was important to me as a kid, for example. Mm -hmm. When for me as a kid and every kid that I talk to, when you walk outside and you look up at the stars and you see this incredible vista of stuff that's out there. And as a little kid, you don't know what it is. It seems kind of magical though, because it's surrounding you. When you first get the understanding that your planet is just in space with stars off in every direction, it's kind of this amazing feeling which makes you feel part of a greater universe, that there's more out there than what we're just embedded in on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And for me as a kid, it really just sparked this desire to explore and know and understand more about what's out there in the universe. And I don't know about other people in terms of why space is important right now, but when things are a little bit crazy and uncertain in the world, it's nice to have a reminder that that there's more than just us here on this small little pale blue dot planet, that, there, that the solar system and the galaxy and the universe are there and they're gonna keep on turning. And it's just a nice kind of grounding thing for me personally. Hmm. Where um, did this passion for space come from? Was there, uh, a teacher or was there a class or what was, what made you kind of move into, yeah, I think I can build rocket ships. Like, I think that's a cool thing for me to do. You know, it kind of originally started with my mom. And even though my mom isn't, you know, she's not an engineer and she started working at McDonald's when I was young. And now she works at a place where she kind of does, um, she fixes eyeglasses and sells eyeglasses and stuff. Nice. But when I grew up, she just, was always interested in science fiction. We watched Star Trek and Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and all of that stuff. And whenever there was a shuttle launch, she would turn it on TV and we'd watch it. Whenever airplanes went by, she would point them out in the sky. She was just always fascinated by that kind of stuff. And I think because it was always around as I was growing up and I learned to love watching science fiction shows and reading science fiction books. And when I first started thinking about what it is that I wanted to do with my life, I decided that something related to space would at least keep me interested for an entire 50 year career or whatever. And I grew up pre-internet, I'm that old. <laughs> and I really just didn't know what astronomers actually did all day and why people would pay you to be an astronomer. And so I chickened out a little bit on going straight for an astronomy degree and decided that engineering seemed more concrete. I kind of had a sense of what a career as an engineer would be. And so I decided to study engineering because I knew NASA needs engineers to build spacecraft. Sure, I could do that. So right. that's why but around high school is when I decided that's what I wanted to do. And um, as far as where you grew up, where did you grow up? You grew up in the Midwest, right? I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky. That's how South. you say it, by the way, Louisville. Louisville, Kentucky. home <laughs> of Muhammad Ali. Yeah, very good. And I'm. how many black women were interested in space from Louisville, Kentucky? So I personally did not know any, except for my mom, who was mm -hmm. always interested in space. 
And the kinds of things that I was exposed to, I mean, we had like the science center, which was really cool that I went to, but I didn't, I don't remember ever knowing of any black female role models, except for Uhura on Star Trek. And one of the reasons my mom watched that show is because Uhura looked like my mom's older sister. They would come running home from school to watch that show. Cause they're like, look, it's Uhura, she's on TV. And uh, that's part of what got her hooked on Star Trek. Yeah, I have to say Nichelle Nichols um, as Uhura inspired me as as a young person um, because it gave me hope. Like, you know, to know that Star Trek was taking place hundreds of years from when, you know, I was now. It's just like, oh, we're in space. We're, we're actually relevant. And, you know, I had a chance to meet and talk to Nichelle Nichols. Nice. Um, once we were on a we were on a show together, and it was like one of the few times I kind of got starstruck, you know, because so cool. she was just so she was very gracious, but she was very regal, you know, mm. very regal of a human being. And I don't think she realizes how many people she inspired, not just as an artist, but people in science. Like you mm. know, almost everyone I talk to who is of color and in the sciences has been influenced by Lieutenant Aura and Star Trek. Almost everyone. You know, I think, I think, I think that she knows, I think she has to know. She came to visit JPL in uh, 2015 and I was such a lucky bloke to get, to get to be one of the people to go in and meet her. Right. And I can't remember how this topic turned up. I must have told her about how my mom loved to watch Star Trek. Uh-huh. And she told me the story, which I later read about in articles, that she was going to quit the show after the first season. Have you heard this? Do you know the story? Yes, I think I do. Yeah. She was going to quit the show and she got a chance to meet Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah. And he told her, like, you do not understand the impact you are having on people of color, you have got to stay on the show. And it was the thing that made her stay. So that's kind of incredible. And I think like people who get to meet her also tell her their their backstory. So I think she has to know now. Yeah, I think enough people have, have come up to her. But I, you know, the, when you're an artist, there's a thing about being an artist that because everything is so subjective, you really don't know the impact that you're having. You know, <clears throat> and and um, from being in Star Wars, I have this feeling as well when I get people coming up to me talking about how I influence them in becoming, you know, either like a software engineer or, or a cartoonist or something to that effect. You know, I just thought I was I was just I just got a job, you know, what I'm saying like so you don't really <laughs> understand as an artist how much you affect people because of that subjectivity out there in the art world in science it feels as if um you know because either the mission worked or it didn't (laughs) right either the (laughs) rover landed or it exploded like you kind of know what happens you know what i'm saying so success there's a there's a there's a tremendous you know measure of success do you ever feel as if when you're coming up with something or when you're trying to make something work does doubt ever creep in there oh gosh yes holy cow yes (laughs) and it's because even let me find some wood to knock on even though i personally have not been involved in a mission that's had a big failure knock 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 we know it 
happens, right? There, look at the historical record because we're doing things that are difficult because we are taking some calculated risks. We don't know everything, right? We, we try to be smart. We try to look ahead and figure out all the things that can go wrong, but um, we're not perfect. And so sometimes we lose missions and that is just, it's painful. And so because you know that can happen, it, it makes you careful. We have this term, one of, one of my mentors at the lab calls it proper paranoia, where wow. you want to be worried, oh, can this thing go wrong? Can this thing go wrong? Can this thing go wrong? And you don't want to dwell on that to the point where you get paralyzed. That would be improper paranoia. But you also don't want to think, ah, there's a 25% chance that thing could work. That's good enough. You know, <laughs> that's not proper paranoia. And so you kind of, you almost want to make friends with the seed of doubt because it's the thing mm. that helps you remember to double check and triple check all the things that are important to make sure that your mission's going to work. But you can't get to the point where it's crushing and you're unable to do your job. Right. I, 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 that's interesting because, you know, when you are launching a spacecraft into space, there is a lot of unknown. I mean, there's a lot of known because of what we've, you know, figured out over the years of space travel, but there's a lot of unknown. And I would assume that that would create some kind of anxiety, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Over the variables. How do you deal with the idea of the the proper paranoia and anxiety? I'll give you an example. Um, And that, that whole unknown thing comes from when we're pushing the bounds and going into an environment where we've never sent a spacecraft before. And the reason we're going is because it's scientifically interesting because we don't know what's there. So take Jupiter, for example, giant, beautiful planet that is has like 11, you could put about 11 Earths across the middle of Jupiter. It's just enormous. And it generates this massive magnetic field kind of outward around the equator mostly. Um, imagine like Jupiter sitting in a big donut and it's in the donut hole and you've got this sort of torus shaped area of high radiation that you have to deal with. We sent a spacecraft called Juno, launched in 2011, took five years to get there and put it into orbit around Jupiter in a way that kind of goes, uh, what is it like? I'm gonna forget the altitude. My mission manager would shoot me 4,000 kilometers maybe (laughs) above the cloud tops, kind of going in in that zone between Jupiter and the inner side of the donut hole, like trying to thread the needle and miss as much of the radiation as possible and then do this huge loop um, every 53 days around the planet. And we had some idea of what the radiation environment and the magnetic field was there, but based on models that were built on data that you can get from the earth and also from uh, previous spacecraft that were there, but none of the spacecraft that we sent there before went through this particular area around the planet. And so what you do is you come up with your best estimates of what the area might be like. And then you say, well, what if it's two times as bad? What if it's five times as bad? Or you add some conservative, some conservatism on top of it. And you make sure you design your spacecraft so that it can deal with a more punishing environment than you expect. Now, you can't say, well, what if it's a thousand times as bad? Because, well, now you have to have, you know, titanium shields that are 12 feet thick or something ridiculous that you actually can't afford. You don't have that much mass capacity to get it all the way out there. So you have to be conservative, but not overboard. And now you're nervous, right? When your spacecraft gets there the first time, what's going to happen? Is it going to be okay? And you, you have to go through as much smart engineering judgment and analysis as you possibly can in order to 
get the level of risk down as low as you can within the time and and money and mass, you know, all those constraints that you have. And that's how you deal with it. It's it's all about calculated risks. The entire spacecraft journey, what's the most exciting part about it? Yeah, you know, I can't pick one. Ah, <laughs> the, the, the two, I'll give you two that are the most exciting for me personally are the ones that you would imagine. Um, if, especially if you've been on a project before launch, a couple of years, few years before launch, and you're doing all this work and putting all this blood, sweat, and tears, and you get to launch day, and your spacecraft is on the top of the rocket and they're counting down to light the candle, that's like such high energy. Lots and lots of anxiety too, because generally we don't build the rockets, right? We, we purchase the rockets from people who do a really good job building rockets, but you didn't build it. And so you have that little extra, oh, that's gonna work kind of feeling. And then <laughs> when the rocket launches and it's on its way, there's this huge release of, um, excitement you're not you're not super scared anymore because it's on its way but then you have to immediately get back to work because you get the data from the spacecraft you see how it's doing now you have to check it out and make sure all the instruments are still working after going through that like super shaky high dynamics environment and so super high and then back to work <laughs> and then the next high point for me is after you've, you've been on the spacecraft operations team, you're doing all the things, sending all the commands, dealing with all the issues that happen in what we call crews on the way there. And then when you're going to a planet like MRO going to Mars or like Juno going to Jupiter or like Psyche when it launches going to the asteroid named Psyche, you are going to get into orbit around this body. And for a spacecraft where you're using chemical propulsion, you're taking a propellant and combining it with an oxidizer to produce thrust, usually you have to do like some kind of long duration burn in order to slow down enough to get captured by the gravity of the planet that you're going to. And that's also a very high anxiety time because now a lot of stuff needs to happen and the right series with the right durations for your spacecraft to get into orbit. And the thing is so far away that it takes, you know, minutes up to, what was it like? 20 minutes at, at Mars when the planets are farthest apart, or maybe maybe seven minutes if they're a lot closer. Or at Jupiter, it might have been, I can't even remember now, holy cow, 45 minutes one way? It was a long time. Um, and so you can't joystick the thing. It has to all be automated on board, right. following a sequence of steps and being able to respond to things that go wrong and get back up and running and continue that burn and get into orbit. So there's a huge amount of stress associated with that because you just you have to trust that you did your job right and then sit on your hands and wait to hear how it went and it's always super exciting once the burn starts on time cuts off on time space traps in orbit yeah <laughs> the whole celebration that happens that's amazing now you and i met doing um science speed dating with the right. science and entertainment exchange and i was just mm -hmm blown away by your presentation uh, about Psyche. And um, you also have a wonderful TED Talk about Psyche as well. And, you know, I think every, I watch it at like twice a month just to get inspired. <laughs> um, and I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't really ask you about this mission to Psyche. Can you give us just like, the science speed dating rundown of, of the mission? I can, but I promise not to talk as fast as I did in that one seven minute. Yeah, <laughs> the like seven that. minute one was just like an assault <laughs> of just phenomenal, just engineering and, and 
and excitement. I, 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 I was blown away by it. It was just like, it, it was like being it was in a race car. The fire hose, right? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the psyche It's such, it's such a cool mission for so many different reasons. Number one is the science that they're going to do. There's this asteroid. I think it's the 10th largest asteroid in our solar system. It is the 16th asteroid that was discovered in the early 1800s. I think 1801. I'm not going to say, because so I'll probably mess it up <laughs> a long time uh, ago. Okay. And, it is an asteroid in the main belt out there between Mars and Jupiter. And from the information that the scientists had in hand uh, up to, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a very high likelihood that it might be mostly made of metal. And there is this hypothesis out there. Like if you have this asteroid that's so big, it would span the distance between L.A. and San Diego. Like what could cause an asteroid like that that's mostly made of metal? And the hypothesis was something like this. As, as way back in the very beginning of our solar system, you had this huge cloud of dust and gas left over from exploded stars from billions of years ago. And they start to collapse and come together under gravity and some other things that our scientists tried to tell me about that I'm probably gonna fail to explain very well, so I'll skip it. <laughs> so mostly gravity when things start getting big enough. And as you collect this matter and it gets, it gets into a mass that's bigger and bigger and bigger, what happens is there's this aluminum 26 isotope that is radioactive and it generates heat. And as you get bigger, you get a lot of it. And so you get hotter and as you get hot enough, it melts. And then the things that are denser sink towards the middle. And so all the metal, the iron and nickel will sink in towards the middle and then you have a crust of stuff on top. Now, when you get really big, you turn into a planet like the earth. That's why we have our iron core, but then we have a whole bunch of other stuff on top of that. When you're small, you don't have enough aluminum 26 to melt, but you can be in this interesting intermediate stage where you can have enough of that stuff to melt, have all your metals sink to the middle, and then have a collision with other things that are forming that blows the whole outside crust off, leaving the metal to come back together, and then you have this big ball of metal out there. Mm. And so the idea was that Psyche might be this kind of baby proto-planetary core that has had all the outside stripped off and now it's just sitting there waiting for us to come and explore it which is a juicy science target for the scientists because we can't study our own core it's way too far down underneath too much stuff you can't go study it directly so if you can study a little baby planet core like this you can learn a lot more about planet formation now the more data we get the more people study it there's there's a lot of uncertainty in trying to study this thing from earth it's like super tiny couple pixels in a picture. Um, and it's very difficult to get a lot of information, which is why we want to send a spacecraft there. It's unclear whether it really is mostly metal or if it just has a high percentage of metal and some other things, we really don't know. There's this great picture or a uh, great paper that a bunch of the scientists on the project and their collaborators have written trying to summarize what we know about it so that once we get there and learn a whole bunch more, we can then update our knowledge. Pretty cool. So when did you come in? in the in the psyche process i came in let's see so this project started oh no how do i answer that so there's a whole bunch of different ways of how projects can get turned into real projects as opposed to just a gleam in someone's eye and one of the ways is this thing called the discovery program which nasa headquarters runs and they'll say every two years here's the kinds of science things that we're interested in 
NASA centers and industry people will partner up and put together proposals like, well, what about this kind of mission? What about that kind of mission? The spacecraft can be like this, the instruments can be like that. And they and scientists and engineers and a bunch of people work together to put these proposals together. I think the year Psyche went in was um, 20, I think it was the 2014 announcement of opportunity of Discovery saying, hey, here's some ideas. And there are about like 28 proposals that went through. And then there's a whole bunch of work that people do on them. They're saying the mission is going to be like this, the is going to be like this. And then NASA will down select. And I think they down selected to about five and said, these five, here are the things that are good about your proposal. Here are the things that are kind of weak. Go off and do some more work. And then at the end of that process, they picked two. And Psyche was one of the two that got selected, I think in January 2017. And I joined the mission maybe about a year after that. So they were underway, but it was still pretty early uh, on. Now, do you like bid on what missions you get to be a part of, or do they just go, um, we need Tracy on this one? <laughs> it's, a, it's a mix. The thing that's interesting about the lab is, I, I think it kind of boils down to three different ways. You could either say, ooh, there's a, there's a project over there, and they don't have this kind of role, and they have what we call a requisition out looking for people. And you can go submit your resume and go do interviews. Um, and then if they pick you, yeah, you get that job. And if they don't, well, you keep looking. And so that's way number one. Way number two is they might, like if it's, if it's a role embedded in the team where they're not gonna put out a requisition, they might just come and come to a supervisor and say, hey, supervisor's out there, we're looking for X, Y, Z person. And the supervisor might just find a person and say, hey, I want you to do this job, is that okay with you? And that usually they, they ask, which is kind of nice. And then if, if you're interested and it works for the project, then they'll just slot you in there. And another way is um, someone on the project might just be thinking, hey, I need X, Y, Z kind of skill sets. I know this person over there, this person over there, that person over there who has those skill sets. And then they'll start talking to them. And if they think that works, then you pull your supervisors in and then figure it out and end up working on it that way. So there's a few different ways. Okay, so you get pulled into Psyche, and um, I'm going to oversimplify this question a lot. How do you land a spacecraft on an asteroid that's moving through space? Like, <laughs> it seems like shooting a bullet with a bullet. Like, how do you, how do you possibly, you know, how would... How, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I like, what's the challenge? Call that way. <laughs> yeah. And so, so here's here's the, an interesting thing. So Psyche is doing something slightly less hard. We are not actually gonna try to land on the surface. We are gonna go into orbit. And so, in some ways, that's easier. Actually, in a lot of ways, that's just easier <laughs> because. So imagine it this way. So, the Earth is going around the sun once a year and then psyche is partway between mars and jupiter and it's going around the sun and so we have to put ourselves on this arc to get all the way out there and then what you end up doing is kind of sneaking up on the asteroid slow it's, it's almost like you've seen those films where you have an airplane and then you have another airplane coming and then they're gonna match up and refuel right yes. you kind of have to match your velocity and your direction with that thing and when you do then you can kind of scoot up to it and and slowly get closer and, and get into orbit and psyche is interesting because this is the first mission that i've worked on that is not a 
chemical propulsion where you take a propellant and an oxidizer and mix them together and combust and make force. It is a, uh, it's got a Hall effect thruster, which uses xenon atoms. It puts them through a very high voltage, which strips an electron off and ionizes them and then sends those things through a strong magnetic field, which makes them accelerate out the back. And it produces a very, very tiny amount of thrust. Like if you imagine if you're, if you're standing next to a car and you put your hand on the front of the car and the car takes off, that's a huge amount of thrust on your hand, right? right. This spacecraft does not generate that kind of thrust. It's like if you put your hand out and put a slice of bread on your hand, that's how much thrust is made by the spacecraft. And so it just has to keep thrusting and thrusting and thrusting and going hour after hour and day after day and week after week. And that builds up acceleration, which then enables it to get where it's going. It's just a very highly efficient way of doing it. It just, it just takes a while. So it's gonna take us like three and a half years to get all the way out there to the orbit of Psyche. And it's so small that from the earth, we can't, pinpoint exactly where it is so that we can navigate the spacecraft there based on just our knowledge of the asteroid from Earth. We actually use our science camera to do what we call optical navigation. Mm -hmm. And it's basically taking images of the asteroid as we get closer, sending those back to people on the Earth who figure out exactly where the thing is relative to the background stars and where we know the spacecraft is. And then it uses that to adjust how it's coming in so that we can get into orbit. And we end up getting into a pretty big orbit around the asteroid to do our initial science. And then as we learn better exactly where the thing is while we're in orbit, we can get into a lower orbit to do some different science, a lower orbit to do some different science, and then we get down to our very lowest orbit. So we're sort of sneaking up on it. But we're not planning to land. We're just going to orbit it. So are you going to try to grab some other information along the way does that happen in these missions or do you go straight for the target accomplish what you've set out to accomplish and then bring the spacecraft home so as a as an engineer i tend to focus on what are we going to do like what do we need to do in order to get these instruments there to do their thing right but scientists are always are going to be trying to look for information on the way and sometimes that information is important to help them calibrate the instruments so that they can better understand the data when they get there. Right. Like I know one of our instruments, I think, if I'm not misremembering this, is gonna be studying the solar wind along the way because the solar wind goes through the whole solar system. There's gonna be solar wind out there at Psyche. And so studying it along the way helps us account for that in the data when we get there. So that's one thing that we'll do. Um, I'll tell you an example from Juno when we when we took that spacecraft and took it all the way to Jupiter, we had to do this big kind of loop through the solar system. We, we did a big loop out past the orbit of Mars and then back by the Earth a couple of years later to get enough of a gravity assist so that we could then boost and get all the heck the way out to Jupiter really far away. And when we went by the Earth, we turned our instruments toward the Earth and we're collecting science data because it would be our great opportunity to make sure that the instruments were properly measuring a magnetic field and properly looking for all the things that the instruments were going to be doing out at Jupiter. So yeah, sometimes they're good opportunities to collect data on the way. Does that, does that mess up the mission at all? Like, you know, my wife does this all the time. It's like, we're trying to get to a movie and she's like, Oh, let's stop at the store and grab <laughs> some ice cream before we go spend two hours in the theater. Like, does, do you have to like, when you do make a, a detour, does that do anything to how you're planning this thing? That's such a great question. So in one way, yes, and in one way, no. Um, the, 
one of the reasons why we were able to do that thing at the Earth with Juno is because we needed to fly by the Earth specifically for the mission design. Like we had to do it in order to get there but, and launching the year we were launching and trying to arrive when we arrived. And so it's kind of like, well, because you're doing that anyway, why don't we do some science? And and it's interesting because <laughs> there's this there's this really, how, how do I describe this? There's this really interesting push and pull, give and take between engineers and scientists where the scientists rightfully remind we engineers, like the reason we're going is to get the data. Like there would be no point for you building this fancy dancy spacecraft if we weren't getting all the science information and learning new stuff. And so they're always trying to push the bounds and I want more data and I want this and I want that, I want that. And for the, on the engineering side, we are always thinking, you know, proper paranoia. We're trying to be careful. Don't do too many things. Like we don't want to do stuff we haven't checked out on the ground. What if we mess something up and then we kill the whole mission and like, let's be careful. And so there's this little push pull with scientists wanting to do more and do more and squeeze every last drop of capability. And the engineer is going, wait, 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 let's be a little careful with this little baby spacecraft. So there's, there's that along the way, as well as once you get to where you're going, but, but it's healthy, right? The scientists are right. We're there to get the science. And the engineers are right. We don't want to break the spacecraft. So right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have that conversation. How do you get to be you? I mean, you have such an incredible life journey and landing where you've landed in the position that you've landed in. What's the tra- Is there a trajectory? Like, do you have to go to a specific you know, school that puts you on a path that all of a sudden gets you to be a systems engineer. Like, how do you get, how do you get to be you? So I, I love, I love asking people that question at the lab because every single answer you get is dramatically different. And I think before I tell you what my little story is, the takeaway is that there are a bajillion different ways to, to take a path and land doing a job like this or a job similar to this. And so for me personally, right, decided in high school, this is kind of what I wanted to do. I went to University of Kentucky, not super far from my well, from where I grew up, it's in Lexington, like 70 miles away, studied mechanical engineering because again, I was too chicken to do straight arrow. Like, what if I can't get hired by an aerospace company and then I can't have food? Like maybe I should <laughs> I do mechanical engineering. I could, I could build cars if I had to, sure. And so when I was there, I was very fortunate in having the engineering faculty always in heavily encouraging students to go do a co-op or an internship. And the idea is if you start studying engineering and then you go do an internship and you learn what it's all about, well, maybe you'll decide to do a slightly different focus. Maybe you decide you hate engineering and want to do something completely different. So it's a nice way to get a sense of what it is that engineers do all day. I walk into the co-op office and we're in Kentucky, right? I expected them to hand me a sheet of paper saying your options are you can work over here building printers. You can work over here building construction equipment. You can work over here for oil companies. And you know, I was like, well, whatever it is, I'll just go try it out. But when I walked in the door, instead of handing me a list of options, they said, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I want to work for NASA. Baha. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what do you actually have? And the woman that I talked to said, well, we have a contact in NASA Langley. Like, we can probably set you up with a phone interview. And I'm like, shut up. You cannot be serious. And they're like, yeah. So I got a phone interview. I talked to the person on the phone for maybe half an hour. And at the end of the talk, she was like, yeah, it sounds like you'd be fine. Can you start like early May? And I'm like, what's up? <laughs> you do the thing where you have to like cover the phone, scream a little bit, jump up and down. Yes, early May would be just fine. And it was, that was a, that was 
there have been a lot of turning points in my career along the way, but having that opportunity to go intern at NASA Langley as a kid, right? I was 19, 20 years old as an undergrad was amazing. And once I got my foot in the door there, they made it very easy for co-ops who did a good job to just come back and come back and come back. So I did four different rotations there. And then I decided to go to grad school and get my master's degree. I honestly just didn't feel ready to be released on the world as a baby engineer yet. So I went to Georgia Tech to work on my master's degree in mechanical engineering. And then come career fair, now I had this great resume. You know, I did really well in undergrad and I interned at NASA Langley and I did a research project at Georgia Tech. And when the, I saw the JPL recruiters talk to them, they brought my resume out to the lab. Got, a, got an interview here, literally drooled all over anybody they would let me talk to, shameless. Right? <laughs> like, oh my God, this place is so great. Can you hire me, please? And they hired me right out of grad school in 2000. And that's that was my path to get here. But that's not, that's not even typical, right? I know people who started in music and then were doing work with synthesizers and wound up trans, translating that into working on science instruments. And now they work at the lab. And I know people who got a job working at a completely different area, maybe in engineering, but like in manufacturing, say, and then they decided, wow, this is not fulfilling. I'm going to go back to school and get a degree in astrophysics, right? And now they work at the lab. So there, you don't have to feel like there's any one path. And there's a lot of places, a lot of people at the lab who aren't even scientists or engineers. We have artists at the lab. There are teachers, there are communicators, there are lawyers who work for Caltech and are associated with the lab. There are people who have business degrees because we do a lot of procurement. Like it's, it's, it's a village in order to make these kinds of missions that we do. So one of the things I like for people to understand is you can have a career in the space industry and you don't have to be an engineer or a scientist. Oh, I grew up in the South Bronx and um, being a science fiction fan, being a, a, a smart kind of nerdy kid, um, I didn't know that there was a path to JPL or NASA. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things that other people did, you know, other mm. people who had the access, other people who had you know, the money, the, who lived in a better zip code in a better neighborhood. I had no idea that you could be, you could build spacecrafts that, that, you know, orbit planets and, and take samples from asteroids. Like I, it was always like this dream. Um, and it was a dream that I didn't know how to fulfill. So mm. hearing that there are so many different ways to come at this, you know, and so many different paths that you can take and still be able to live. The dream is is, is inspiring. You know, I used to go to the Hayden Planetarium as a kid in New York City. Mm. You know, that was like that was the school trip. You know, they would take, let's take all you bad kids from the Bronx and throw you in the Museum of Natural History. And then uh, when, the, nice. when the teachers wanted an extra hour for lunch, they'd take us next door to Hayden Planetarium. And, cool. you know, a lot of the kids in my, my class hated it. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved being in the dark. I loved when, you know, mm. the projector came on in the middle of the room that looked like a big android and it would spin around. Like all of that stuff was just so exciting to me. And, I, and I've and i always wanted to, you know, a part of me is like, I'm, I'm like a quiet hobby scientist in my own world. Nice. So, you know, it's just really, really inspiring to hear that you don't have to take the, the, the path that 
you imagine you have to take, especially having a son, you know, and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, what his path is. And, you know, knowing that you don't have to be like a Stanford grad and get to NASA. You know what I'm saying? Like you, yeah. there are different ways. So that's super There inspiring. are ways. I and- love that the fact too, that you said you are a quiet hobby scientist, <laughs> because I personally think that I don't, I don't know what it is about let me try not to be too general. I think that science can and is and should be a hobby for everybody. Mm-hmm. There's there's something about people sometimes who worry, think that well, science is for other people. Science is for people who have studied that and whatever. And they don't feel like they can find something interesting and just follow up on it because they think it's interesting and they're curious. And now with the internet and with electronic books you can download from the library. And just, there's so many ways to come at anything you could possibly be interested in. And people who are passionate about those things and can talk about them in a way that is accessible and understandable to people who haven't spent four years studying that specific thing, that everyone can be a hobby scientist. I love that. I love that you said that. Thanks. Yeah, that's it's one of my uh, secret passions that is actually coming out, doing more and more of these events and podcasts are coming out and it's just when i listen as an artist to you or um anyone else who is who's in the field of space or in the field of 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 astrophysics physics it's just inspiring to me um and it and it really just sparks this this that childlike imagination that i had as a kid what inspires you outside of space what inspires you to want to create and 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 invent these things that find its way into your career you know i think i have only recently realized that there are a couple of things throughout my entire life that have sort of been constant drivers one of them it's maybe obvious in retrospect, it's learning. I just love learning new things, whether they're related to space or related to like this whole COVID pandemic that's going on is making me go back and read books like The Coming Plague and Spillover. I just, I want to know how things develop and where they come from and why things like this happen, right? And and the second one, so learning is one, and the second one is related, but it's exploration. Mm -hmm. And one of the most fun things I have discovered I'm going to sound like such a crazy person right now <laughs> is um, lucid dreaming. Yeah. If you, lucid dreaming. You know, <laughs> holy cow. And there are books out there that will teach you techniques step by step just to become more aware in your daily life and think to ask yourself, like, am I awake? Am I asleep? And then what things you can do to, to like actually check is very engineering thing. Try this test, read this thing and then look away and then try to read it again. And if the letters change, you're probably dreaming. And then if you, you can actually get to the point where you can routinely become aware in your dreams. And then it's like having a holodeck inside your own brain. I'm having so much fun with this right now. It's just crazy. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, my mother is really into lucid dreaming. She's very nice. good at it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to have to talk to her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really want to thank you for doing this because, you know, ever since I met you, I, I've always been... I was just really blown away by not not just your what you know and what you do, but your enthusiasm for it. It's it's, it's just an infectious energy, and um, just to be able to have this time and, and talk to you has been has been phenomenal for me. 
Um, because a lot of times I, I think about this stuff and, um, you know, as a, as a learner, as someone who is extremely curious about everything, um, I'm always looking for interesting ideas and, and, um, interesting ways of thinking about things that I haven't thought about before. And, you know, a lot of, uh, especially now with what's going on, I've been really thinking about like, who am I here on earth? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and what am I here to do? Mm -hmm. And you have this wonderful perspective because you get to take things off of this earth. And when you were talking about, you know, this grounding idea that, you know, the universe is still here and we're, we're going to, we're going to keep moving, you know, that, that's something that is, is, is a bit comforting. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, um, and, and please answer this question however you want it, uh, want to, but what do you believe we as human beings on this planet are here to do? That is such a big question. And it's, I like that you said that you like looking for new ways of thinking about things. I do too. And that is a question that seems like is a natural one for us to all ponder, right? And it's one that I don't have a good answer to. My answer has evolved a lot over my life. Um, I used to be, I mean, I was raised in a family that was religious. I'm not religious anymore. Sorry, grandmom, if you don't know that, I'm going to be in big trouble. <laughs> but, um, and so I, it's, it's an interesting perspective then on what it is that humans can find purposeful in their lives. And I do, I went through a period of thinking, you know, why do people need a purpose? Like, you don't need a purpose, just live your life. Right. But I think that there's something in human nature that makes people less deeply content if they don't have a purpose. Yes. And I also think that it is very powerful for people to realize that they can create their own purpose. And I am still zeroing in on exactly what mine is. Right now, it feels like my purpose is learning, but not just learning for me, but I love the fact that my job helps me help scientists learn for humanity so that we as a species know more about the planet we live on, about the solar system we live in, about the universe that we inhabit and how we all came to be here. And I also think just, and maybe this is just because I'm a people person, like I just love people. And whenever I can be around people, meet people and leave them feeling happier than when I met them, that makes me feel really good. So I don't know how like deep of a purpose that is, but I just like it. I, I, I enjoy knowing that I can use my life to make other people have a better life. Well, I enjoy every time we talk and you've always left me um, not only just happier once we, fi once we finish talking, but I always learn so much from you every time we speak. Yes, mission accomplished. Boom, <laughs> done. One of these days... I will return the favor. I don't know when it's going to be because Tracy Drain, you're very smart. And I don't know if I can ever like match that in any kind of way. But one of you these totally days, can. maybe, maybe I'll like 
give you a drum lesson and blow you away or something like yes. that. Yes. <laughs> I would love that. You have no idea. I totally would. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at ahmedbest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Ahmed best thank you all for listening again and i'll see you next time